The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forever. That's beautiful. Okay, we're going to be in Leviticus uh, 15, verses 19 through 33 today. We're going to finish up discharges. Yay. Um, remind you before we get into that that we are uh, uh, going to be into Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. What a misunderstood passage. I mean, to this day, people are saying the Day of Atonement is pointing to this and it's pointing to this. and it's. Yeah, I, I, I have seen so many videos over the years and heard so many commentaries on Leviticus 16 that are so wrong. Okay, they're saying, well, this is leading, this is the atonement of Israel in the future, and there is one day of atonement. There is one day of atonement, and that is past. If Israel is atoned for in the future, that's fine. We observe, you know, these, these, uh, I have one birth in my life, but it's observed every year, right? The nation of the United States of America had one birthday, but we celebrate it every year. And if something happens on that day, hey, great. But there is one day of atonement, and that is it. And you're going to find out. I'm not trying to say that I am going to have every bit of information on what happened in the day of atonement for you. What I'm saying is that you're going to hear what the day of atonement was for. Okay, there's no doubt about it. We're going to go through it very carefully and methodically. It's going to take us three sermons to get through it, and I really think that you will enjoy that sermon. Um, or those sermons and the passage itself and what it is pointing to. But when you're done, I hope to remember to ask you the question, you tell me, is this fulfilled or not? And if anybody says it's not fulfilled, I'm going to wonder what planet you're on. I really am, okay? It's going to be as crystal clear as it can be. But we'll go on right now, uh, Leviticus 15, verse 19. If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or on anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him. He shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond the, her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. But 
But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for one who has a discharge and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. How many are looking forward to being done with this passage in Leviticus? Okay. I know I am. I, when I got to this passage, I was literally horrified that I was going to have to preach on it because it's, it's not the kind of thing we talk about in our nation today, right? And everything that we saw last week, which seems so, uh, turned out to have a spiritual meaning. This particular sermon is going to have a lot of actual repetition in it from last week. And the reason why is because men and women are both unclean, and we can't single out the ladies on this. It's just a different thing, but it's men are stopped up, or the women have a flow of blood, okay? So we need to understand that. There's going to be a lot of repetition. There's going to be one thing in particular why this repetition is important. I highlighted it when I read through here, and if you paid attention to my stress, then you know where that is. If not, then I'll tell you when we get there. When we get to the book of Numbers, and this is so you understand what's going on here today. We get to the book of Numbers. There are going to be things presented to the Levites by the tribes of Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and they present exactly the same things, and they repeat it. Anybody know the passage I'm talking about? It repeats the same thing. It's about this long, and it repeats the same thing 12 times. And you think, why didn't they just say blah, 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 blah? The reason why is because one tribe has one thing different in the entire thing. And the Lord decided instead of saying these tribes gave each these things, he had them describe every single thing 12 times so that you would clue into the fact that one thing of all of it was different. One thing. And the same thing is happening here today. So when I say there's repetition, I don't want you to be bored and start snoozing. There's repetition here for a reason because there is one thing which is in particular different about these. Of course, there are different things that are going on in a woman's body than a man's body, but the overall picture is what's being seen here. Now, before we get into the sermon, as I have done each week, except one where I forgot, we're going to go very quickly to the book of Hebrews, and I just want to take you through a couple things about the law. In case somebody clicks onto one of these sermons in the future, and they think, I've got to observe the law of Moses, and I'm working my way to heaven, we're going to see what the New Testament says about the law of Moses, starting in Hebrews twelve verse, Hebrews 7, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, the priesthood is changed from Levi to Jesus. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. You're only under one law, folks. You're either under Levi or you're under Jesus, and you pick which, because if you want to work your way to heaven through the law of Moses, you ain't getting there. You will work infinitely to get there, and you will never make it, apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that law, who did make it, and then he established a new covenant in his blood. Verse 18 of the same chapter, for on the one hand, there is an annulling. Annulling means ending, it's done, it's over. The law of Moses is annulled. It is annulled. Of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. It was weak, it couldn't save anybody, it was unprofitable. It did nothing for the human soul. Only Christ can do that. Christ had to fulfill it on our part. 
chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, meaning the new covenant in Christ, okay, he made the first obsolete. The word obsolete is an English word that we use to mean that you must do everything that the law says, right? No, it means exactly the opposite. It is done, it is over, it is gone, okay? This is the most important tenet that we can learn from all of the law. There are 39 books of the Old Testament, and the most important thing that we can learn from those 39 books is that the law can't save anybody. Everything in that law, everything in the Old Testament, every single word is pointing to Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of these things for us. We enter heaven by one word, begins with G, ends with race. That's right, grace. We enter heaven by grace and by grace alone. Okay, we're going to go on now. Chapter 10, verse 9. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. You can't establish the second until the first is taken away. The first is taken away in his fulfillment. He died on the cross. It ended. He went into the grave. The law died with him. It's secreted away. He is the fulfillment of it. He is the embodiment of it. And then he came out of the grave. Praise God. He established the second. From his blood, from his resurrection, we have a new covenant in Christ. And that's also Colossians 2.14. He nailed him to the cross. The law is nailed to the cross, okay? His body is nailed to the cross. The law is fulfilled in him. He embodies it. He died. The law died with him. So, misquoted 2.14, but it's there as well. I don't usually quote that one because people don't want to hold on to the words of Paul. But everybody holds on to the words of Hebrews. If they would read the word of Hebrews, which says that it's annulled, it's obsolete, it is set aside, it is fulfilled, it is done, it is weak and unprofitable, etc. Okay, so we've got that out of the way. And uh, I want to remind you one more time that there is a bit of repetition. I've said that twice. And so that's the third time that I've repeated it. There you go. <laughs> Several times while going through the book of Leviticus, I brought up the obvious point that things that we look at in this book are almost completely spiritual in nature. And it must be so because what was forbidden under the law of Moses is not even mentioned in the New Covenant. Our verses today are a classic example of this. What is considered unclean and impure in a woman under the law is not only not mentioned in the New Testament writers, it's not even hinted at. If these things could truly make us unclean, then they would have certainly been repeated in order to keep the people of the church out of the church during the times that they were occurring. Everybody got that? Okay. Further, the ending verses of today tie being cleansed from them into the holiness of the Lord and the very life of the people who are considered unclean by them. If these truly defiled a person, the Holy Spirit would never have come to dwell among the people. Men with discharges and emissions from last week would cause the Spirit to depart. Women with periods would as well. But the Bible says we are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee. It is a one-time-for-all-time thing. Further, there is no distinction between males and females in this regard. All are sealed when one comes to Christ. This then shows us the stupidity of adhering to only chosen and carefully selected parts of the law of Moses. No church, no church that you know of or I know of, even the most legalistic of them all, abides by what is given in these passages here today. Has any person ever been in a church where they made you follow these precepts? No. I don't know of one in Christian history. I've never heard of one. I've never read of one. If they did, it would prove to them that the Spirit was not among them and could not be among them. 
But the same people act as if pork would defile them and keep the spirit at bay. Likewise, they think that not observing a Sabbath would do the same thing. If you can see the idiocy of picking and choosing one's path to salvation in simply relying on Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of these types and pictures, then you are in the sweet spot. Legalism of all types is as poisonous to the body as an attitude that we have full license to sin. Both are wrong, and both will lead to the same sad end, separation from God and an eternal swim in the lake of fire. What we need is grace. What God offers is grace. And when we receive what God gives, we are to demonstrate our thanks in living lives which are given over to him as living sacrifices of holiness and sanctity. Our text verse today comes from Colossians 2. It's verses 6 through 10. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. The law of Moses had some rather restrictive requirements which were levied on the women of Israel when they were having their monthly period, doesn't it? Or at other times that they were facing similar things. But just to show you that the law was actually a restraint on legalism as pertaining to the lives of the ladies, let me read you Charles Ellicott's commentary on today's passage. Now, ladies, think about this. If you were in one of the cultures that I'm about to read you about, to fully appreciate the merciful provisions of the laws enacted here. It is necessary to bear in mind not only the gross superstitions which obtained among the ancients about women in this condition, but the cruel treatment to which wives and daughters were subjected. And in some countries, both in the old and new worlds, are still subjected. It was believed that if a woman in this condition sat under a tree, all its fruit fell off. At her approach, the edge of a tool became blunted, and copper utensils contracted a fetid smell, and meat got sour, and a thousand other things. Hence, the Parsees not only isolated her from the rest of the family, but forbade her speaking to anyone. And those who took food to her in her seclusion had to put it at some distance from her. The Zabi purified fire with everything which she trod. She walked somewhere and she's having a period. They purified it with fire. Even if the wind which came from a quarter where she blew upon anyone, he became polluted. To this day in the Ising, the Kalmuks and many others have special houses for them outside each town and village. And at the river La Plata, they are sewn into hammocks. Have any of you ever been sewn into a hammock with only a small aperture for the mouth until they're well again? To restrain the Jews from sharing these superstitions and from resorting to any of these inhumane acts as well as for sanitary purposes, the lawgiver ordained these benign and necessary rules. Now imagine that. Imagine that. As you can see, the people of Israel were actually kept in check by having been given these laws. And in Christ, even these laws are annulled and they are taken away. 
What is left then is that the Christian woman has a freedom that would have been unheard of in the ancient world and which is still very burden-free in comparison to much of the world even today. The restrictions that are placed upon women are because they are the decision of the Lord for order and propriety within the church and the family. But even those restrictions are no more demanding than those levied upon men. They are just of a different sort to meet the Lord's guidelines for his people. Let's look at these verses today in their proper light, though. They have been given to show us spiritual truths which point to Christ. If we keep this in mind, then what is otherwise a bit personal in nature comes out in a most respectable and proper way. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is natural discharges. It's verses 19 through 24. Verse 19, if a woman has a discharge, the zove or discharge, which was seen in verse 15 too, and which pertained to men right up until verse 18, is now referred to as discharges among women. Verses 19 through 24 concern a natural discharge, and they correspond in general to the natural discharges of man, which are found in verses 16 through 18. What is seen of a discharge here and in the next section not only pictures spiritual things, such as has been the case with male discharges, but it is also relevant to an actual occurrence which is found in the New Testament, which matches the next words as well as the words of the verses to come. And we'll get to that in a while. Verse 19 continues, and the discharge from her body is blood. This is specifically speaking of a discharge of blood, inclusive of, but not limited to, the blood of a woman's monthly period. This discharge is further identified as being in her basar, or flesh. In chapter 12, it was explained that according to the Bible, the life is in the blood. And thus, when there is an issue of blood, it is no longer used for life. And thus, it pictures death. As death is the result of sin, such an issue is a picture of sin. Understand, this is a spiritual picture and there's nothing truly sinful in a woman having a period. Rather, this is showing us typological truths. If a woman has such a discharge then of blood, verse 19 continues, she shall be set apart seven days. A period for a woman is normally three to five days, but a period of two to seven days is not considered abnormal. Seven days is given for this time of purification, regardless of the actual length of the period. As seven is the number of spiritual perfection, it is given to cover any such flow of blood that is considered normal and within this time frame. For her, she is to be set apart, meaning considered unclean. The wording here recalls those of chapter 12. It says, She shall be in her menstrual impurity. The word nida, or ceremonial impurity due to menstruation, was introduced back there in chapter 12, and it was used twice. That passage dealt with an issue of blood due to childbirth. As a woman was set apart due to an issue of blood then, so it is the case with the regular period cycle. These words thus exclude a bloody nose or any other such things. It is speaking of that which issues from the private parts. As this seven days is given, rather than the actual time of the period, which could be as short as two days, we are obviously seeing types and pictures. If it were not so, then the time of uncleanness would end when the period ended. This setting apart in the terms of the state of uncleanness will be further explained in the passage. 
The setting apart, which is referred to, involves not engaging in intimacy with her husband, socializing closely with friends, and not going to the house of God or touching any of the holy things, such as the tithe. Verse 19 continues, And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. One must question if touching a woman who is having a period actually makes that person unclean. The answer must be no. Nothing is said of this under the new covenant. And the old covenant is, as we saw, annulled in Christ. Therefore, this is a precept and an uncleanness which occurs because of the law itself. As Paul says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3.20. Without the law, there would be no knowledge that touching a woman is sin. And thus, sin could not be imputed for doing so. If this blood discharge pictures sin leading to death, then it is emblematic of the words of Paul, again from the book of Romans, chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? This is a spiritual, not a physical death. All sin results in a spiritual disconnect from God. Physical death is merely a result of this spiritually dead state. Verse 20. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. This verse matches verse 4 of the chapter for man. You can see the parallelism. Man is unclean. Woman is unclean. There's no you know, favoritism or disadvantage in one or the other. We're getting these parallels. As seen, defilement is not limited to people alone, but to the things a person comes in contact with. In this case, it extends to where the woman lies or anything on which she sits. The bed and the chair are both places one occupies. The bed is where one rests. The seating is where one engages in fellowship and discourse. The place that a person who is engaged in sins of the flesh lies or sits is considered as unclean because the person who occupies it is unclean. For a clean person to go to their place of rest or fellowship is then to indicate that they have accepted another's unclean state in order to participate in it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That is then pictured in the next verses, verse 21. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. This corresponds to the first half of verse 20. From the uncleanness which is spread from the infected person to the bed, their place of leisure, so the uncleanness transfers also to another person who would then touch that infected article. In Numbers 5 verse 2, such a discharge was sufficient to put anyone so infected outside the camp, just as a person with leprosy was to be. The same word for discharge is used both here and there. The Lord dwelled among the people, and so they were to be put outside the camp during their time of impurity. The sin is an infectious disease, and it renders all who come in contact with it unclean. To be expelled from the camp means that one is out of fellowship with the congregation. As long as such a person has sin in their life which is chronic, they are to be treated as one entirely out of fellowship. For such a person in the church, Paul explains what their punishment is. It's something I repeated from last week in 1 Corinthians 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit 
may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He explains what that means in verse 13 of the same chapter. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. For someone who doesn't have such sin in their life, but who comes in contact with them, they also become defiled through that contact. This is why we are told to not have fellowship with deeds of darkness. We are to put on holiness like a garment, and we are to keep ourselves from participating in these things. We are to separate ourselves from sin, which leads to death. Verse 22, And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. This verse corresponds to the second half of verse 20. Like the bed of the first half, the same is true with anything which is set on of the second. Anyone who touches what she sits on becomes defiled. They must wash their garments and bathe. Further, they remain in a state of defilement until evening. The place where one sits is their place of discourse and fellowship. For a person to come in contact with such a sin pictured here would defile that person. During the time of his defilement, he is excluded from the benefits of the sanctuary. He has touched the place which is occupied by a person engaged in a discharge of the flesh, and he has acquired such defilement as well. Verse 23, if anything is on her bed or on anything which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. Well, this verse here seems superfluous at first, as if it's repeating the thoughts of verses 21 and 22, but it isn't. Those were primary causes of defilement. This is a secondary cause. To touch the bed or place of sitting directly brings defilement where washing is necessary. What this verse is saying is that if there is something on one of those spots and a person touches it, that thing, being unclean, transmits a secondary defilement. No washing is necessary. Instead, they simply remain unclean until evening. An example of what this is picturing might be a person who goes out to a restaurant with a person who is active in sin. The person's character will inevitably be corrupted to some extent by that bad company. However, another person might be at the next table. Though he isn't actively corrupted by the bad character, he picks up the defilement because of the conversation. It is a secondary defilement which is still bound to render the person unclean. Verse 24, and if any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Two other verses from Leviticus need to be cited in connection with this one. The first is from Leviticus eighteen nineteen. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. The next one is from Leviticus 20, verse 18. If a man lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he has exposed her flow, and she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. The first is a direct command. The second gives the penalty for violations of that command. Both seem to not fit with the words of this verse, and so there are two possible meanings of this. The first view is that this is referring to being intimate but ignorant of the flow of blood, whereas it is then assumed that the other two verses which I read you are speaking of purposeful intimacy. It is true that the word lies is euphemistically used elsewhere to indicate sex. This is the most favored explanation among scholars. Another option is that this is speaking only of lying down together, but not being intimate. And while lying down, her impurity is thus on him. 
It is more than a mere touch of the bed or seat or a touch of an article on one of them, but an immersion of oneself through the act of lying down. I prefer this because of the wording of this verse. It's not nearly as explicit as the other two. It only speaks of lying with her, not of uncovering her nakedness or the flow of her blood. But what would be the reason for a man doing this? Well, if we put our minds to it, we could think of a handful of them. For example, it's winter. The family is poor and there is one blanket. Or the two are on a journey and they need to sleep together at night. Nothing here suggests that there is willful or accidental intimacy. It's simply that they have lain together. If this occurs, the man is considered defiled, just as the woman is. Remember, her period may last only three days, but she remains unclean for seven. If the man defiles himself by lying with her, then he is also considered defiled for the full seven days. I prefer this because the person has done something to make himself unclean, and though it was intentional, the participation of it came out of necessity. The issue here is that of a person defiled by another's impurity, not that they were ignorant of it or not. If someone joins with another to steal because they're starving, they're still guilty of stealing. This thought is explained in Proverbs chapter 6 with these words. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet, when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. In Ephesians 4, Paul gives a list of things to not do, because in doing them, we will grieve the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that we can't do them, nor does he say that we will lose our salvation over it. He never even hints at that. Rather, he asks us to not do these things because they are no longer in accord with the life that we have been called to. What is it that makes a soul unclean? What is it that makes us defiled before our God? Is it something that is visibly seen, or is it rather something about our earthly trod? Certainly, it is something from within us. It is that which springs forth from deep within the heart, and there is no cure for it apart from Jesus. Only through him can we make a brand new start. Our lives are not our own, and only one master can we serve. It is either the devil and our working out a life of sin, or it is Jesus Christ who can our soul preserve Without him in our lives, we are certainly done in. Thank God for what he has done through Christ Jesus. Thank God for what he has done for each one of us. Our second thought today is unnatural discharges. It's verses 25 through 33. Verse 25, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, these verses here now correspond to the unnatural male discharges seen in verses 2 through 15. This is still speaking of an issue of blood from the private parts. However, it is an issue distinct from the regular menstruation cycle. In this case, it is a discharge which lasts an extended period of time, and it is not a part of the woman's regular cycle. There is also another type of discharge, which is unnatural. Verse 25 continues, Or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. This would be a period which simply failed to end. In this case, if the period were to go beyond the maximum seven days allotted for purification, the woman would be considered unclean during the entire time the discharge continued. Like the discharge for the male, this in type pictures active sin in one's life. Verse 26, Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. 
and whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. This verse, like verse 20 and verse 4 of the men, shows that there is a state of defilement which transfers to inanimate objects. The difference here from verse 20 is that the state is an unnatural one. As long as she is in this state of defilement, anything she lies on or sits on will be unclean, even as she is unclean. Verse 27, whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. This corresponds once again to verses 21 and 22. The same pictures are being repeated as before. The difference here is that this is a lingering sin which is pictured. It is ongoing and there is no specific time frame by which cleansing can be gauged. However, this does not mean that there is no cure for the sin. All sin can be cleansed because there is a physician, capital P, who can cleanse it. Verse 28, but, but if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. This corresponds to verse 13 for the cleansing of a man from his discharge, but he was first required to wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water. Here the mere passage of seven days is sufficient for the cleansing. No reason is given for this change, but the absence of the requirement necessitates our asking why. And I don't know a scholar that has commented on why. Why? Because everything keeps showing up the same. We have these parallels, and all of a sudden, she doesn't have to do something he did. And it's something I brought up last week, and I stressed. When the man was cleansed, he had to do two things. The first was to wash his clothes, and the second was to wash his flesh meaning as private parts in living water. If you remembered, I talked about the different uses of the word flesh, and I said, this is referring to something else because here it says et kol, or and all, meaning his whole body. So there's this distinction, which is very, very subtle in the word of God. But he was required to wash his flesh, meaning his private parts in living water. As sin transfers from the male, that pictured the part of man where life transfers. In this, he was washed with the new life of Christ's living water. However, for the woman, there is no transfer of original sin from her to the child. Think of Jesus, born of a woman, but born without a human father. That's why this verse is here. That's why all of this has been given to us, is to show us Jesus Christ. He did not inherit sin. That's The entire passage is contingent on this one word, but... And then what comes after but? She doesn't have to do something that he did. She is simply a receptacle for bearing the child. Therefore, the symbolic washing which the man was required to accomplish was not needed for the woman. Her complete purification and atonement will come from the sacrifices that she brings, just as the man also brought for his atonement. Verse 29, ladies, you got a high honor. You got a high honor because one of you bore the son of God. Male never had that honor, right? We look at these verses and we say, look at the women. They get so diminished in the Bible. How many times have you heard liberal scholars say these things? And every single time we've come to one of these passages, it has always been proven exactly the opposite. The women are looked for more carefully. The women have a greater honor. The women have a lesser responsibility because they are free from transferring the, the sin to their child. Only the male does that. It's all it's all here in the word and it is so absolutely marvelous it's so wonderful to see we'll go back verse 29 again and on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest 
This verse corresponds to the same rights as for the man in verse 14. The only major difference is that in verse 14, it added the words, and come before the Lord. This is implied here as the tent of meeting is where the Lord dwells, and also because it is specifically stated in the next verse. On this, the eighth day, the day of new beginnings, the healed woman is granted the right to come before the Lord into the sanctuary in order to receive final atonement. With her, she is to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. As before, and we've seen this several times, these picture Christ in his simplicity, purity, and humility. And more, the dove's affectionate nature pictures Christ's affection for his people, so much so that he came to dwell among them and give himself for them in order to purify them. Verse 29 continues, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The door of the tent of meeting means the altar of burnt offering. It is that altar which symbolically allows access for the atoned for sinner into the holy place. There at the altar, which is before or in the face of the Lord, the person is to give the birds to the priest. Verse 30, then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. This verse corresponds to verse 15 for the man, the wording being extremely similar. As each time we have seen this, the birds both picture the work of Christ. One is a sin offering for the life given over wholly to God. He found the life acceptable, and therefore he then accepts his sin offering in our place. That is seen in several places in Scripture, but we could go to Hebrews 9.28 and see that, okay? The other is as a burnt offering, as a life wholly offered to God, and as an acceptable and sweet-smelling aroma to him. That is seen in Ephesians 5, verse 2. The same typology seen for the purification of the man in these corresponding verses pertains to the woman here as well. Verse 30 continues, And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Just as with the man, the life of sin in the woman, pictured by the discharge, is atoned for and covered over. The penalty for that life of sin is transferred to the innocent bird. In picture, the atonement and vicarious death are made by Christ on our behalf. Reconciliation has come. New life has begun. In the New Testament, there is an account which is recorded in all three synoptic gospels to which this passage corresponds. That's not always the case. Not all parables are repeated. All of them have certain things they say and certain things they don't say, but all three synoptic gospels record this. Jesus had just crossed over the Sea of Galilee and was surrounded by a great multitude who was waiting for him. At this time, he performed two miracles. All three place the one account in the middle of the other. And so it's right to read them both together, even though only one of them pertains to this particular passage in Leviticus. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 5. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? 
But the disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talita kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. And he said that something should be given her to eat. In this account, the woman was certainly fearful and trembling, not only because she was cured, but because by touching Jesus, the law would deem him as unclean. The same is true with him touching the dead girl. Anyone who touched a dead body would be considered unclean according to the law. But this is what it means when Isaiah writes, he took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. A little girl of 12 years of age was brought back to physical life by the Lord. Likewise, an adult female of Israel was restored to wholeness by the Lord after 12 years of sickness. But as we have seen, her physical sickness pictures the spiritual death which exists in humanity. Thus, he is the healer and bestower of physical life, and he is the healer and bestower of spiritual life as well. And so in this one account, we see that there was 12 years of physical life, which first ended in death and then in renewed life. And there was also a picture of 12 years of spiritual death, which resulted in renewed life. Each account is given based on the law of Moses to show the superiority of what would come in Christ the Lord. The reason why the Lord selected the number 12 for both of these people, the little girl and the woman who is cured, is seen in the meaning of the number 12. E.W. Bollinger defines its meaning. He says 12 is a perfect number, signifying perfection of government or of governmental perfection. It is found as a multiple in all that has to do with rule. 12 is the product of 3, which is the perfectly divine and heavenly number, and 4, the earthly, the number of what is material and organic. 12 is 3 multiplied by 4, and hence denotes that which can scarcely be explained in words, but which the spiritual perception can at once appreciate. In curing these two women, Christ was confirming his governmental perfection over both the natural and the spiritual worlds. The natural in curing the woman with the issue of blood, the spiritual in restoring life to the dead girl. And yet both hold the opposite truth. The woman with the issue was symbolically spiritually restored. The dead girl was made naturally alive again. As Bollinger noted, the use of the number 12 here can scarcely be explained in words, but our spiritual perception of what occurred can at once be appreciated. 
He is the ruler of that which is divine and heavenly. He is the ruler of that which is material and organic. He is the God-man. That's why that passage is being given to us, to show us the humanity and the deity at one time in Jesus Christ. Verse 31, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. These words here are speaking of the rites of purification from uncleanness, not specifically keeping unclean people away from the tabernacle. Those who were defiled by discharges were to be kept away. But those who touched them or something unclean which was defiled by them or those who were cleansed of their discharges still had to be cleansed themselves. This was through certain time frames, certain washings, or certain rites at the altar of incense. All of these picture the work of Christ unclean until evening, washing one's body, making the required sacrifices, all of them, all of them point to the true cleansing which is found in Christ. With these, they were to separate themselves from their uncleanness. And the reason is specifically given, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. The word tabernacle in this verse is mishkan. It's only the second time that it has been used in the book of Leviticus thus far. It speaks of the tabernacle or the dwelling place which is found beneath the tent of meeting and which comprises the holy place and the most holy place. It and everything in it points to Christ in his work. It is translated by the Greek Old Testament as skene. That is the root of the word which John uses in the New Testament to state that Jesus came and dwelt among us in John 1.14. In Leviticus 11, verse 44, the Lord told the people that they were to be holy just as he is holy. The only way that this can actually come about is by transferring our unholiness to him. This is what all, all of this is pointing to. Every type of cleansing is to tell us that we are defiled and that we need Jesus and his work to cleanse us. Without this, we remain defiled. This is what Jesus showed the people when he healed the two ladies one of them of physical affliction and one of physical death. It is Christ alone who rules over both. Verse 32, this is the law for the one who has a discharge and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby. This verse simply summarizes what was said about the man who is unclean with a discharge or who has a seminal emission, which is found in verses 1 through 18. Verse 33 finishes, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. And this concluding verse of the chapter is given as a summary for the monthly impurity of a woman, both for the man and the woman with a discharge, and for a man who lies with a woman who is unclean. As with other such passages, like that for the law of leprosy, the final verses of the chapter appear to end on a rather anticlimactic note. And yet they are there to call to memory that which has been submitted to the people by the Lord. In the end, they polish off the passages with a strong note of completion and finality that would otherwise be lacking. With but one more chapter, the first half of the book of Leviticus, that of the laws for sacrifice and purification, will be complete. From there, a new direction in the book will take place. Each section has and each section will continue to develop a theme for the people of Israel. It is that of the sanctification of the people leading to holiness. And this is exactly what is expected for us as well. We are saved unto holiness, not because we are already holy. 
As the Lord said, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. It is true that we will possess this state in its fullness someday when Christ comes to glorify us, but God asks us to work towards it now, emulating him and glorifying him for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let us not fall short and be found displeasing to him, but rather let us live our lives out pursuing him, applying his words of the New Testament epistles to our lives and bringing others along with us on this marvelous journey to which we have been granted the right to go on. And if by chance there is someone who has not yet started that journey by calling on Jesus, I tell you right now, it is the accepted time and now is the day of salvation. We have no promise of a tomorrow. None. We don't know when we're going to die. You know, I was watching, I have to look through a million news articles a day. In this past week, I was, you know, they have these streaming videos in the middle of news services now, and you can't help but see them. And there's a, I think it was an off-duty cop that was racing in Chicago, and there was a girl going this way, and he ran right into her, and she was dead that quickly. Yeah, no, both of them died, but I mean, she, he was having fun. She's just doing her thing, right? And she's gone. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen to us. You know, my son is here. Well, he, one night, I was talking to his girlfriend about this on the way to dinner last night. A couple years ago, they have these things at, uh, outside of Hooters. They used to have these car shows every Saturday night. I don't know if they still do it or not, but car shows. And my son, before he was 20, totaled more cars than I've ever had in my life. I'm not kidding. And not one of them was his fault. But I told him, and in this particular instance, you know, sometimes you get what you deserve. He's out at this car show, and they're there till 2 or 3 in the morning, and then they say, well, let's go to Chili's up 41 to have dinner. Well, what do you find on the highway at 3 o'clock in the morning? Drunks, right? So he's driving with his friend. They're going down the road like this. Here's Billy up in front of him, and here's my son. And a guy is texting and drunk, driving the wrong way down US 41. And he hit Billy, and Billy's car was completely, there was not one thing left of it except the little spot where he was sitting. These are both Christian boys that grew up in the Christian church down the road, right? Billy, there, there was nothing left of that car, literally not a bolt that you could save except that one little spot where he was. And he walked out with some bruises. He was beaten up, but that was it. And then that guy turned around and fronted, once again, head-on collision with my son. And my son's car was destroyed. You can go look at the pictures on Facebook, destroyed. And they both could have been dead that day. we got to take these things to heart. We've got to think them through. All of the things that we see in this book, and I know they seem, oh, this is tedious. I want to hear about bodily emissions. This is telling us about Jesus. It's telling us about our lives that are being lived right now. And he's trying to wake us up to spiritual truths about him. He doesn't care about the impurity of a woman. I don't, I'm not going to ask the question, but we've got ladies in here right now. And nobody's checking at the door, right? He is telling us these things so that we can find out what is wrong with the human condition. And we can get it resolved before that car hits us head on. Every one of us is getting in a car on the way home. I don't know one of you that's walking home. You could, but you're not. You're right down the road. But other than that, you know, it, this is what we're facing in life. So please, if you have never called on Jesus, and this is an appeal to just you. This is the people online. We need to get it done. We need to call on Jesus and say, I understand that my life is filled with sin. It's all pictured here, and I need to be cleansed of it. I call on Jesus, and I ask him to purify me, and I believe that God raised him from the dead to prove that he did it. 
That's what it comes down to week after week after week. I'll keep telling you all these crazy stories about things I see on news services because I want you to think through not just what we're looking at, but what the implication of not making this decision is, how absolutely important it is to call on Jesus. We could have lost several people in this church in the past year and just from natural, natural body degradation, not unnatural things, right? This is the world we live in. We want to make sure that we're right with Christ now. And then please tell people about Jesus. Take the tracks. Pass them out. It doesn't cost you anything. You're going out to dinner this week anyway, probably. Please. All right, our closing verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's verses 17 and 18. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. This is the New Testament telling us to do this, right? Do not touch what is unclean. What's he referring to? exactly what we're looking at right here. Paul is writing from the Old Testament, telling him in the New Testament, it still pertains. It's just spiritual applications. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There you go. Wonderful, wonderful words right out of the New Testament, which are telling us that what we're looking at in the Old is directly related to Jesus Christ. Next week, oh, Leviticus 16, 1 through 10. It's amazing stuff for sure. For every man and every gent. And pictures of Christ by the ton. It's entitled Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Part one. Part one. That'll be our 27th Leviticus sermon. Okay? I'm really excited about what's coming. I know you may not get anything out of it, but I find this to be the most fascinating passage of the entire five books of Moses is this right here. There are funner stories, don't get me wrong, and there are great pictures, but this is the center of what God is doing for us. When we talk about atonement in Christ Jesus, this is what we're talking about. All right? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him. He'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Got a poem for you today. Discharging discharges. Okay, same as last week. Yes, and we're discharging this chapter. If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, if this is seen... And she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever touches her shall until evening be unclean. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. This is what I mean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening, so I have said. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes also and bathe in water and be unclean until evening, as you certainly know. If anything is on her bed or on anything on which she sits as well, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening, as to you I tell. And if any man lies with her at all, so that her impurity is on him, yes, it is now on him seen, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if she runs beyond her usual time of impurity... In her is some type of health insecurity. All the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Know this with all surety. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. She shall be deemed as impure. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean, so you see, as the uncleanness of her impurity." 
Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening when the new day is seen. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days. And after that, she shall be clean, certainly an event worthy of praise. And on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons still alive and tweeting and bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness as a proffering. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness. When they defile my tabernacle that is among them, so to you I make this address. This is the law for one who has a discharge, and for him who emits semen and is thereby unclean, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, so it shall be seen. And for one who has a discharge, any discharge as is here seen, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. Lord God, it is we who have been unclean. It is we who have walked away from you. Our sins defiled us. Only stained garments were seen. Our iniquities stained us through and through. But in your amazing love and in your magnificent mercy, you made a way for us to be brought back to you. Through the blood of Christ ended the great controversy. We have been reconciled. Wonderful things you did do. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah to the purifier of our souls. For each person cleansed by his precious blood who have been recorded there in heaven's rolls. We praise you, our matchless King. We praise you now and for all of our days. To you forever we will, with the saints, break forth and sing. And to you, O God, we give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that we are cleansed and purified through Jesus. How wonderful that is. And help us to daily go out and tell people about this, that there is a world of sin. And this world is what separates us from you. And there are not many paths to you. We talked about that at the beginning of this, this service today, that people believe that we can come to you through this God or through that God or through this book or through that book. Or It is not that way. There is one path to be reconciled to you, God the Father, and it is Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son. And that is it. You have offered no other path because no other path is possible. We thank you that this one is available. And we thank you that for those who have accepted this path and will be reconciled to you for all eternity through him. And we pray for those who still are on the outside and, you know, not making that commitment. We pray that you will do whatever it takes to bring them to their knees and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father before they die. We pray this, that you will be glorified, that you will be exalted, and that they will be saved. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.